I like this quote here. Roy was not gay. He was a man who liked having sex with men. Gays were weak and effeminate, and he always seemed to have these young blood boys around. It just wasn't discussed. He was interested in power and access. And access to young boys' asses, apparently. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I'm out here fucking riding solo this week. Uh, my boy, my dog, A, out there fucking traversing the Grand Canyon like a fucking madman, like the mad shaman he is. I can't wait for him to get back. Uh, it's going to be an interesting episode. I'm kind of doing something like I used to do with my solo show on the Patreon. Um Except that I'm not just going to cover news, you know. I, I got a subject here that I've kind of been reading about and researching lately that I'm really interested in. Um, so, we'll get to that. You know, I got a little couple topical news things with what's going on currently that we'll go over. But um, I'm pretty, I'm hoping homie will be back soon. Can't wait uh, for us to go into that predictive programming shit when he's back in a new video episode, you know. I've been feeling kind of down and dumpy lately, you know. Um, didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, been really despondent. If you listened to Lifting in the Ruins yesterday, you know that. Um, but I'm actually kind of excited about what I'm about to do here. Um, just cause I, this is something that like a lot of people, we've talked about it. We've danced around the subject. Um, but we've never really kind of deep dove back into it. And this is a very specific aspect of this subject. I don't want to like give anything away, but I mean, if you can, if you're on Patreon and you're watching this video, and yes, there will be a video on Patreon for this because I'm basically doing a Streamlabs broadcast at the same time while I'm recording here. Um, you'll get to see the uh, all the articles, the video accompaniment, but I am going to be reading them out to people, so don't worry. You know, you're not going to miss anything too special besides my ugly mug. But um, with that being said, uh, you know, things this week week's uh, been a little interesting. Uh, we have. Florida is getting pounded right now by a hurricane. I've been watching live streams on it all day. Like, some real tragic shit going on. You know, it's just, uh, I've seen houses, the roofs are already up to water. Uh, like, up, water's already up to the roofs. It's looking pretty bad down there for them. So, hopefully, there's not too bad loss of life and people got out of the way, you know, and got to safety at some point. I, I sure fucking hope so, because I would hate to be caught in the middle of that shit. And, like, props to all the storm chasers out there, like, bringing us the footage of this shit, man. Because it is, like, I've seen some pretty mind-bending shit. And that was, like, before it even actually made landfall. You know? Some pretty intense, like, trees coming over, power lines getting knocked over all over the fucking place. Definitely bad news. Um, but there was a little funny thing that came out of it. Uh, Mr. Don Lamont here, our favorite, you know, CNN anchor, lost his spot in prime time. He's doing it. He's doing the most, though, to try and kind of retain his own usual kind of silliness. So um, we'll play the video. 
it'll pick up on the Streamlabs audio pretty good. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it, but I'll try and narrate it as best I can on the for the um, the podcast upload. Uh, so here we go. more intensification as it's still over the warm waters of the uh, eastern Gulf of Mexico. But I don't think we're going to get any more rapid intensification. If you look here, you can actually see, pretty interesting for your viewers, you can actually see a second eye wall forming around the inner eye wall. And that's basically the second eye wall has overtaken the original eye wall. And that should arrest development. Uh, so listen, I just, I'm just trying to get that you said you want to talk about climate change. But what, what effect does climate change have on this phenomenon that that is happening now because it seems these storms are intensifying that's the question i don't think you can link climate change to any one event okay. on the whole on the cumulative uh, climate change uh, may be making storms worse uh, but uh, to link it to any one event um, I, I would caution against that okay well they, listen i grew up there and these storms are intensifying something is causing them to int intensify so this storm is just, it's a massive one. Its effects are also being felt uh, in the southern part of Florida. What about the areas that, that may not be taking a direct hit or experiencing the storm surge like on the west coast? How much will the rest of the state be impacted? Yeah, that's actually a good question because um, we flip out to this other graphic. You can see uh, this orange area is the size. So if you think about how big the wind field is, and you can just see how big that wind field is relative to traditional hurricanes and as that moves up and over the Florida Peninsula into the southeast United States you can see this big area uh, blue area tropical storm warnings um, so it's really gonna be a big event for not just all right so I think I figured out how to get it so everybody could hear it uh, just sticking my mic up to the speaker um, but that works so um, Mr. Lemon here he uh he tried to like shoehorn climate change into it because that's the big talking point a lot of the times with this kind of stuff is that the big talking point is that climate change is the reason these storms are bad. But the fact of the matter is the storms have been bad for years, you know, like there's there's records of like the worst ones that have ever happened were like back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, some of the most devastating ones that have ever happened. You can look them up. Like, there's there's History Channel shows about them. Like, if you just watch some weather, you know, like the hurricane thing, it, it happens all the fucking time. So it's just kind of, like, weird, dishonest talking point shoehorning. Like, Lemon can't, like, not be, like, shoehorn his political beliefs that he holds into the thing. And then the, hitting him with the, I grew up there, so, like, I kind of know. You know, it's like, all right, well, dude, I don't know. This, this is a guy from Noah. You know, he's a scientist. Uh, I think he might know what the fuck he's talking about. Just just theorizing here. Um, so, you know, pretty funny stuff. I mean, you're going to see this kind of shit as we have storms more. And, like, we haven't had really bad hurricane seasons lately. Like, 2017 was the worst um, in recent memory. Like, it was fucking terrible. Like, that was, that was the year. Like, Houston got flooded super bad. Like, Texas just got blown out. Corpus Christi, all that shit got fucked up. Like, flooded, destroyed. So I can't really look at it in the sense of like, oh, it's just this one. You know, that's what the guy said. Don't you can't blame it on any one particular event. You can't use climate change as like a catch all for any one particular event at the end of the day. OK, technical difficulties. My God. All right. We're back. Sorry, everybody. That will be you probably won't even hear this because I'm going to cut it out. So 
don't need the headphones either. Um, as I was saying, Don Lemon made a fool of himself on TV once again. Big whoop, you know, unsurprising for Don Lemon. Um, uh, and other, you know, the next kind of current events thing I wanted to talk about was the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, the other night, an incident happened with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which there's been a lot of talk around. And I think, I guess we can kind of give a little light sit rep about the whole situation. The pipeline is what provides a lot of the energy and natural gas to Europe. Um, and the Russians have essentially threatened to draw it down, essentially kind of holding them hostage via power. And we have kind of decided to go along with that here, you know, kind of just thinking like, oh, yeah, well, you know, um, that's just a sacrifice you have to make. Europeans, you got to be cold so we can fight the Russian menace, you know, which is I guess that's just the way these globalists are operating right now. That's kind of their mentality. Um, everybody's got to pitch in. Everyone has to suffer. You know, Americans pay higher prices at the pump. Uh, which have gone down. I will give you that. Uh, commodities prices increase. Uh, you know all this kind of stuff. It's all kind of this uh, shatter effect slash blowback from this incident in Ukraine that's still go ongoing. You know, um, and it seems that right now, you know, I mean, we've, we're sending billions out the door to them every day. I think everybody who's listening to this kind of knows that. Um, I've complained about it plenty, but um, so the Nord Stream two, there was a. You know, they registered seismic stuff that happened near the pipeline the other night off the coast of the Baltics. Uh, that's where it runs through the water there, I believe. And the pipeline burst. There's actually a photo of it. I can just, Let me click over here. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. So, okay, here we go. So, yeah, Nord Stream leak. Let's see. Yeah, so there's the pick of it right there. Uh, anyone who can't see it, it looks like a big bubbly thing with, like, streaks coming off of it in the middle of the water. Um it's pretty pretty bad if you think about it, just because it's kind of probably fucking up the environment there, not really doing anything good uh, at the end of the day. So, definitely a problem, but they registered seismic activity. That's the important bit. Um, and they went, I guess, and investigated, and they are like, there were several explosions. I believe it was three at the most. Um, I'm going to definitely read one of the articles here in a second. Uh, I just kind of want to give a brief synopsis, but... Um, so there was a several seismic activity registered around the thing. So that leads people to believe in uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the Queen Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the head of the European Union. She even came out and said that they, they definitely suspect sabotage and that um, there will be the strongest consequences possible for it, which is big talk from the EU because they don't really have a standing army. They just have a bunch of, they've been trying to make one for a while, but they just have a bunch of like kind of rando, you know, all their coalition governments that come in. But I mean, not a surprising thing to see. Um, if you've watched, if you can see the signals and the stuff that I'm about to show you here of like kind of what led up to this, um, it's uh, my initial kind of suspicion when I saw it before, like, uh, there was some, Baltic guy or maybe it was a Finnish if someone from one of the Baltic countries who worked in the government there who said thanks USA which was interesting but I was kind of thinking that was what going on before this it was kind of a Gulf of Tonkin type thing I want to say it's like a false flag most likely uh, if we're going to be conspiracy minded here I want to say it's pretty close to a false flag has to be I mean what else would it be uh, it's they said the idea that three leaks could happen like that and all be like seismically active of like kind of indicating an explosion is a uh, damn near impossible uh, at the end of the day. It's fucking impossible to actually 
happen that way or it's just the craziest coincidence in the world, you know, which I guess uh, we live in a time of crazy ass coincidences. So I guess that's how things go. But moving on, um, let's go ahead and check out this thing, kind of give like an accurate synopsis of it because that's just kind of my feels on it. So um, I'm not going to read too much of this. I don't want to bore everybody just reading off articles the whole time. But um, the EU, US and NATO have suggested damage to the pipelines between Russia and Germany was deliberate, but they have not blamed Russia directly. Yeah, no one's actually came out and did that immediately, which is funny. The only people really blaming them are people with like Ukraine flags in their bio. Those are the ones blaming it. But if if that's one of Russia's main money making things, I don't understand why they would want to damage it themselves. But again, I don't understand, you know, who knows how things work. A lot of people didn't think Russia was going to invade, but they still did it. You know, Putin's out here threatening nuclear war and stuff. And, you know, so I don't know. But Russia has said it was not involved and asked if the U.S. was instead, which is kind of my inclination. So I guess that makes me a Russian agent. But um, they've they have previously been accused of using gas supplies as a weapon against the West. Well, that's that's true. They were definitely doing that. And that's just I think that's just smart warfare. At the end of the day, they're just like hit them where it hurts. You know, you guys did the same thing that you guys are sanctioning them out the ass. They're like, we'll cut off your gas. You know, tough shit. So, the leaks of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines were discovered on Monday and Tuesday. Neither pipeline was operating at the time. Yeah, because there's no gas flowing through it, you know. Uh, it might be holding something in it, or it could be air leaking out of it. But there's there was no gas flowing through it. So, I'm assuming it's just, in, like, air bubbles coming out. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in the water over there, so I couldn't tell you. But um, neither pipeline was operating, and the project was abandoned when Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia shut down Nord Stream 1 in September, citing a need for maintenance. Both pipelines were still... Okay, here we go. Both See, this is what I get when I assume things. Both pipelines were still full of gas. They just weren't you know, operating them, which bubbled to the surface in an area a kilometer wide on the sea's surface. Danish Energy Minister Dan Jorgensen likely said the leaks were last would last for a week until the gas escape from the pipes runs out. An investigation has been launched. European Commission head Ursula von der Leyen has promised the strongest possible response if the attack has proven to have been deliberate. Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov has dismissed accusations of sabotage as predictable, stupid, and absurd. I mean, I'm inclined to agree with him. It is kind of stupid, predictable, and or absurd. Um, he said he was extremely concerned about the leaks, adding that the possibility of a deliberate attack could not be ruled out. In the aftermath of the alleged attacks, Norway, now Europe's largest gas uh, supplier, has decided to deploy its military to protect crucial infrastructure. Prime Minister Jonas Garstor, I probably butchered that, told a news conference that the military would be more visible at oil and gas installations. So now this is where the knuckle down starts happening. You know, this is where like kind of movie type stuff starts happening, where mo militaries get mobilized to protect you know, energy targets and stuff. You don't see things like that every day. So that's definitely a big kind of thing. You know, that's not, that's not normal. Um, any attack would be handled jointly with allies. He said the Navy will be deployed to protect the offshore installations while police could increase presence at onshore facilities. He said Equinox, a Norwegian state owned energy company company also said on Wednesday that it had also stepped up its security measures. So, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that he had discussed the protection of critical infrastructure with the Defense Minister of Denmark, the country closest to the damage. And in the U.S. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the country would continue to work to safeguard Europe's energy security. Well, I don't know if you guys have really been doing that in the first place, what with all the things that have been happening and their energy getting cut off, so I, I don't know. Good try, though. Nice play. Um, so, yeah, that kind of pretty much... Uh, Sets it sets it up, you know. So here's the thing about the seismologists: they reported underwater blasts before the leaks emerged, um, and they said there's no doubt that these were explosions. So 
that could be anything. I mean, if we're going to play like uh, devil's advocate here, that could have just been the pipes bursting. If we're not going to assume there was some kind of deliberate sabotage, it could have just been the pipes bursting uh, from pressure buildup of just gas sitting in them. You know, I mean, let's, but again, leaning into the kind of our schizo shit, like someone did this probably it's either Russia or the U S or maybe some aberrant third party. I don't know, but I don't, you know, it's, it's all kind of speculation until something gets proved, which it probably will never be proven who actually did this. This will just be one of those things that kind of files in with the same kind of Russian push of information that has been going on in the past year, you know, and two two years in like ha- the past half year precisely with like the real like information surrounding the whole con- global conflict that's going on that I would guess that you would just want to call a cold world war that's going on. You know, We're, like you can kind of ignore it and go about your life because it isn't directly affecting you, but, like, there is kind of a cold world war going on right now um, at the end of the day. So, to tie in with that, and this is why the U.S. got blamed for this, I got a video of uh, old uh, Brandon here, our boy Brandon, Dark Brandon, up to no good once again. So, he talks about how he was saying, this video was a... A while back, but he said if something happened, if Russia invaded Ukraine, they would end the Nord Stream 2. So let's check it out. Oh, it's muted. That means Ukraine again. Then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We we will bring an end to it. How will you how will you do that? Exactly. Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Will you commit today to turning off and pulling the plug on Nord Stream 2? You didn't mention it. You haven't mentioned it. As I already said, we are acting together. We are absolutely united and we will not taking different steps. We will do the same steps and they will be very, very hard to Russia and they should understand If, uh, okay. All right, so there's that. So that video resurfaced, and that's a very interesting kind of snippet from uh, Biden there. Um, that's a very vague way to put actions, and that was talking about the Nord Stream 2. I don't think he was saying... Nord Stream 2 was abandoned when Russia invaded, so I think a lot of people are kind of using this clip out of context, um, but this is kind of, I'm only talking about it because that's this is what people are directly correlating to try and blame us. But... Nord Stream 1 and 2 were both hit, yes. But Nord Stream 2 was abandoned after Russia invaded. We just read that. You know, I just read that out to you. So it's kind of a, it's kind of like one of those things. It's not quite, it's like a straight arrow. You could sit there and it's a straight arrow to like what you think may have happened right away, but it takes a little right turn there that kind of doesn't quite fit the narrative. Because, I mean, but if you're going to blow one pipeline, I guess why wouldn't you fuck the other one up, right? Like if you really wanted to hurt Russia, because Russia's kind of been, um, I got it's not winning, you know, because a lot of motherfuckers are dying on their side. But they their their strategy historically is to just zerg rush, throw as many bodies as you can at something, and uh, hope for the best outcome, which hasn't served them very well in a lot of places, such as uh, you know Afghanistan, um, Chechnya. They lost a lot of guys, but they just basically fucking leveled Grozny to the fucking ground, you know, and that's how they essentially won. But they still left at the end of the day, but. You know, they, they inflict a lot of hurt on the people that they want, that they're trying to put under their thumb, but usually end up not really 
seizing the victory at the end of the day, I guess is how you would want to put it. Same same as we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, it's you think people would learn after the history of Afghanistan that you just don't go there to try and like subjugate the people who live there. They're just too good at fucking defending their turf, like with the least means possible. You know, like they they used fucking shitty AKs and shitty rifles from like the fucking world wars to to defend against the Russians, like. And that they had tanks, helicopters, like everything, most advanced, one of the more advanced militaries at the time. And same with us, you know, I mean, you can't, there's a lot to be said about that. So naturally, yeah, that's, that's kind of the crux of this whole thing is that people are trying to say and kind of point towards the U S as being the ones that did this, you know, at the end of the day. So I don't know. It makes me, it makes you think, but, um, Moving on to the the big kind of thing that I've been kind of hiding the whole time of the stuff that I kind of want to talk about today. Um, it's based off, uh, I've been reading this book by Whitney Webb called One Nation Under Blackmail. Um, it just came out recently, the first one. She's talked about it a lot on her stuff, but it got me really interested in these OG connections um, that kind of involve CIA, blackmail, um, mob connections, their connections to the underworld that like, and it was kind of this thing I was forming in my head, this theory of like the CIA almost operates like organized crime because it's very much in, it's been in bed with organized crime in its past, very much so. Um, and all these connections with these old mob bosses that were forged back back in the day with the early CIA actually draws a connection all the way in a, almost a straight line through its history up to Epstein. So... With that being said, that to kind of start it off, you know, we can find, um, we'll just start, we'll, we'll kind of give a, this will be a good overview of this article, uh, and then we can kind of go into some of the other characters that are talked about. Um, so, Jeffrey Epstein, we all remember in 2008, uh, when he first got caught for everything, you know, of all the um, trafficking and whatever else, sex offending sex trafficking minors with federal, you know, federal charges were brought against him and, um, they ended up getting dropped. And, um, there was a kind of a, that's always been a thing with a lot of people. Like how the fuck did they get dropped? And that kind of led more people to start doing some digging. And you realize like, there's a good chance that Jeffrey Epstein was actually intelligence via CIA and the mob, probably some kind of blackmail compromise operation. But and when you see that, it's much easier, and you start looking back in these contexts, you can see that the CIA has been doing this kind of shit forever. <laughs> it's not, this is not, Epstein's just the guy that's their guy right now. You know, they, they did this a lot in the past. Um, so, this actually, this article is written by Whitney Webb. Um, Hidden in plain sight, the shocking origins of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Um, or no, this is Whitney Webb, this is a quote by Whitney Webb, excuse me, I think. Because it's by Jim W. Dean and Gordon Duff. Yeah. So, despite his sweet dart deals and having seemingly evaded justice, billionaire sex offender Jeffrey Epstein was arrested earlier this month on federal charges for sex trafficking minors. Epstein's arrest has again brought increased media attention to many of his famous friends, the current president among them. Yeah, Trump. So... Many questions have since been asked about how much Epstein's famous friends knew of his activities and exactly what Epstein was up to. The latter arguably received the most attention after it was reported that Alex Acosta, who arranged Epstein's sweetheart deal in 2008 and who recently resigned as Donald Trump's labor secretary following Epstein's arrest, so he ducked out of there, claimed the mysterious billionaire had worked for intelligence. Other investigations have made it increasingly clear that Epstein was running a blackmail operation and as he had bugged the venues, 
as he had bugged the venues, whether it is New York Mansion or Caribbean Island Getaway, with microphones and cameras to record the salacious interactions that transpired between his guests and the underage girls that he exploited. Epstein appeared to have stored much of that blackmail in a safe on his private island. Claims of Epstein's links and his involvements in a sophisticated, well-funded sexual blackmail operation have surprisingly spurred few media outlets to examine the history of intelligence agencies both in the U.S. and abroad conducting similar sexual blackmail operations, many of which which also involved underage prostitutes. So it seems like the stuff that Epstein does is our CIA's bread and fucking butter. You know, this is how you get things done. This is how you get this is how you get the dirt on people. It's kind of like what we were talking about on LITR and how these fucking all these Twitch people keep dirt and receipts on each other. Epstein's just the receipts guy, you know, he has the shit ready to fuck over anyone. And that's why he's allowed to run around and do what he did or was allowed to run around and do what he did. And more than likely why he needed to be killed um, at the end of the day. So uh, claims of Epstein's link and involvement in a sophisticated Oh, I already read that. Sorry, everybody. In the U.S. alone, the CIA operated numerous sexual blackmail operations. So, throughout the country, employing prostitutes to target foreign diplomats and what the Washington Post named the CIA's love traps, honeypots. You know, it's, we know the terminology. We've all, we've all kind of seen dumb pop culture movies and shit about it. The honeypot, you know, you get a hot chick to go in there. I mean, it's what James O'Keefe does, honestly. James O'Keefe likes honeypot and girl. You know, he uses honeypots to fucking trick poor interns for companies into saying some stupid shit man a lot of the time so uh to target foreign diplomats and what washington post named the cia's love traps if one goes even farther back in the u.s historical record it becomes apparent that these tactics and their use against powerful political and influential figures significantly predate the cia and even its precursor the oss in fact they were pioneered in the years earlier by none other than the american mafia so the cia learned all its dirty tricks from the american mafia for sure so in the course of this investigation, Mint Press discovered that a handful of figures who were influential in American organized crime during and after um, Prohibition, so this goes all the way back to Prohibition, were directly engaged in sexual blackmail operations that they used for their own often dark purposes. Um, in part one of this exclusive investigation, Mint Press will examine how a mob-linked businessman with deep ties and notorious gangster Meyer Lansky developed close ties with the Federal Bureau of Investigation while also running a sexual blackmail operation for decades, which later became a covert part of the anti-communist crusade of the 1950s, led by Senator Joseph McCarthy, himself known throughout Washington for having a habit of drunkenly groping underage teenage girls. So it looks like this is just a normal thing for our government, man. It, it, it's really like kind of telling when you read this stuff, and it's stuff that can all probably be corroborated, you know? It's it, like, I don't think Whitney Webb publishes just fucking bullshit, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I like to believe she's very thoroughly researched uh, most of this stuff. Or I guess people would be bringing, like, uh, slander cases against her, you know, at the end of the day. So, yes, yet it would be one of McCarthy's closest aides who would take over the ring in the later years, trafficking minors, and expanding the sexual blackmail operation. At the same time, he expanded his own political influence, putting him in close contact with prominent figures, including former President Ronald Reagan and a man who would later become President Donald Trump. It will be revealed in part two after this figure's death, the blackmail operation continued under various successors in different cities, and there's strong evidence, strong evidence that Jeffrey Epstein became one of them. So, enter Samuel Bronfman. So we'll cut back to this article, but I wanted to kind of hop over here and uh, pull up Bronfman's uh, wiki so we can kind of know who he is. So 
I should have pulled this up before the show, but I did not. All right, so Samuel Bronfman, uh, he was born in Bessarabia. That was part of the. It was so it's Moldova. One of eight children of Mendel and Yechiel Bronfman. He and his parents were both Jewish refugees from the Tsarist Russia's anti-Semitic pogroms, and they went to Saskatchewan, and then they moved to Manitoba. So, let's talk about his business career because he, he. So they're in, he's based out of Canada. Bronfman's Distillers Corporation acquired Joseph E. Seagram's and Sons of Waterloo, Ontario from heirs of Joseph Seagram in 1928. Bronfman eventually built an empire based on the appeal of brand names developed previously by Seagram, including Calvert DeWars and Seven Crown, to the high-level consumers. His sales were boosted during the United States abortive experiment with Prohibition. Yeah, because the thing with Prohibition was is that um, there was the confines of the laws um, basically made it so you it wasn't illegal to import it. But it was illegal to, to, like, sell it and distribute it in America. So they could, like, he was able to do some kind of, like, hit some gray area and could basically help bring in liquor during Prohibition. Like, all these guys, Meyer Lansky, Bronfman's, like, all these people, uh, Rosenthal, all these guys kind of grouped up and were, like, the main people who kept the alcohol flowing during Prohibition, which I don't know if that makes them good guys or not, um, but... Nonetheless, that was kind of their bread and butter. That's how they made all their fucking money. And um, when the tax law changed during Lyndon Johnson's administration, it became advantage advantageous for him to purchase an oil company, which he did purchase the Texas Pacific Coal and Oil Company. So these guys are kind of forging their own path, kind of like the Rothschilds and whoever else. And, and these aren't plucky businessmen. These are like cutthroat maniacs who are, uh, you know, madmen, if you will, doing their best to kind of... Um, figure out how to get themselves, you know, personally enriched and carve out their own destiny here in the here in this uh western world, you know. So, I like how Wikipedia has a thing about his philanthropy because he was actually not a very good guy. So, let's cut back over to this article here. So, this will probably go over some stuff we just said, but uh it's 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 pinnacle to the whole you know, crux of what I'm trying to say here. So, the Prohibition era in the United States is often used as an example of how banning recreational substances not only increases their popularity, but also causes a boom in criminal activity. Sure, yeah. I mean, Prohibition was like a pretty violent time. A lot of shootings by mobsters, a lot of violence, a lot of just crime in general was very rife at the time because the country was in a downward spiral. They fucking, you know, this is right around the time before, you know, depression hit. Things weren't going great, you know. Things weren't awesome in the 1920s. I mean, sure, you can look at all the flapper girls, but it was great for the upper crust. They were having a good time, but the average person was not probably having a too great of a time living in the cities and stuff and rural areas. So um, it brought together key figures whose successors and affiliates would eventually create a series of blackmail and sex trafficking rings that would give rise to the likes of Jeffrey Epstein, the Lolita Express, and Orgy Island. Samuel Bronfman never planned to become a major producer of liquor, but true to his family's last name, which means Brandy Man... In Yiddish, he eventually began distributing alcohol. Sorry, I had to hit the weed pen. You see, it's easier when A's here because I can do these things and he keeps talking. So all these bosses are me like trying to take a sip of a beer, whatever else, you know. Sorry to break the fourth wall here. But um, 
So the Bronfman family business used loopholes to skirt the law and find technically legal ways to sell alcohol in the hotels and stores the family owned. The family relied on its connections with members of the American Mafia to legally smuggle alcohol from the United States. Soon after Prohibition ended in Canada, it began in the United States, and by the time the flow of illegal alcohol had turned the other way, the Bronfmans, whose business ventures were then being led by Sam Bronfman and his brothers, were relatively late to an already flourishing bootlegging trade. They were late starters in two of the most lucrative markets on the high seas across the Detroit River, on the high seas and across the Detroit River. What came out of the border trade in Saskatchewan was insignificant by comparison. Bronfman once told a Canadian journalist, Terence Robertson, who was then writing a biography of Bronfman. Nonetheless, this was when we started to make our real money, Bronfman recounted. Robertson's biography on Bronfman was never published as he died under mysterious circumstances soon after warning his colleagues that he had uncovered unsavory information about the Bronfman family. Key to Bronfman's success during American Prohibition were his ties his family had cultivated and organized crime during Canada's Prohibition. Ties that led many prominent members of the mob in the United States to favor Bronfman as a business partner. Bronfman liquor was purchased in massive quantities by many crime lords who still live on an American legend, legend including Charles Lucky Luciano, Moe Dallitz, Abner Longies Wilman, and Meyer Lonsky. Most of Bronfman's mob associates during Prohibition were members of what became known as the National Crime Syndicate, which a 1950s Senate investigative body known as the Kefalver Committee, described as a confederation dominated by Italian-American and Jewish-American mobs. And yeah, they were big, like, before, I mean, really, you know, the, Ita- the Italian mob gets so much attention in, like, mafioso culture, but, like, the Jewish mob was fucking huge. Like, they were a big deal, and uh, Meyer Lansky was enormous. Like, the casinos he ran, and Cuba, like, all this shit, like, and they, like, they're kind of almost like a little footnote in history. You know, like almost like they're not try either. They try not to talk about them in some way. I don't know. I mean, you can find the information. It's just like when the mob is brought up, you usually only hear about the Italian mob, La Cosa Nostra, you know, that kind of shit. And it's interesting to see like that these guys were kind of doing their own fucking thing before even like the Italian mob really got big, you know, into what we see we saw in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s with like the heydays of the fucking American, you know, Italian mob. So, um, during that investigation, some of the biggest names in the American Mafia named Bronfman as a central figure in their bootlegger operations. The window of notorious American mob boss Meyer Lansky, oh, the widow, God, you see, I get nervous and I start reading too fast. Um, American mob boss Meyer Lansky even recounted how Bronfman had thrown lavish dinner parties for her husband. Years later, Samuel Bronfman's children and grandchildren, their family ties to the criminal underworld intact, would go on to associate closely with Leslie Wexner. Allegedly the source of much of Epstein's mysterious wealth and other modeling philanthropists, and some would even manage their own sexual blackmail operations, including the recently busted blackmail-based sex cult Nexium. Interesting, yeah. So Nexium was linked to Epstein, I guess. Yeah. So later generations of the Bronfman family, particularly Samuel Bronfman's sons Edgar and Charles, will be discussed in greater detail in part two of this report. So this is a long ass fucking article. Um, it just kind of goes really deep into the mob and stuff. But um, there was some uh, let's see here. So yeah, Rosen Steele was another guy. Um, and he was one of the middlemen for Bronfman. Um, Very involved with that. Uh, He was definitely a big part of the whole consortium. Apparently, Rosensteel was a pretty nasty guy. He was really mean to his employees. Not a very nice dude. Um, 
So uh, this one part's called The Untouchable Monster. Bronfman and Rosensteel became legendary in the North American liquor business in part due to their fight for supremacy in the industry. So these guys were, you know, these guys were cutthroat. Like, that's, I mean, I guess that's pretty self-explanatory because, like, how do you get to the top of an industry? You know, like, it's like Rockefeller. I think it's a Rockefeller quote. Um, It says, um, I think it's competition is a sin or something like that. So, you know, that's, like, kind of the idea of, like, Climbing to the top, being the top dog, being the monopoly on the whole thing. Literally the monopoly, man, you know, except you're not cute with a monocle and handing out fake money. It's you're you're a piece of shit who treats everyone poorly and steps on people's heads to get where you need to be. And they they ran. They had plenty of run ins with the law because they were all doing illegal shit, you know. Um, so J. Edgar Hoover, blackmail victim. Uh, most records place the beginning of Hoover's relationship with Rosenstiel in the 1950s, the same decade when Susan Kaufman reported that Hoover was attending Rosenstiel's blackmail parties. So Rosenstiel ran his own little blackmail parties, much like Epstein. So he might have been his, the first iteration of like the kind of operation that they run that Epstein was heading up. You know, I mean, shady business guy who doesn't really do anything, but uh, he contributes money to a lot of causes. Uh, he funds people. He's a money management guy you know it's it's all obscurification for these kind of um offshore banks you know th there's a huge like the estimation of the amount of wealth that's like floating around in offshore banks that's used for nefarious purposes is like high trillions you know it's insane like it's almost an unfathomable amount of money that is a wash out here in offshore banks that uh, is used for these kind of bad things that like CIA black budget stuff, like, you know, trafficking cocaine in Mena, Arkansas, and Iran Contra running weapons, uh, sneaking weapons in during the gang wars in the nineties, like all that kind of stuff that wasn't funded by like government funds. You know, that shit wasn't, that wasn't on the budget, you know, <laughs> that wasn't on the, uh, on paper budget at least. Uh, the way you get things done is you fucking have a lot of extra cash flow to fucking grease some palms and get what you need to do, I guess, because in, you know, in the spycraft industry, it doesn't, uh, you know, mountains don't move on their own. So, um, so Rosenstiel's FBI file obtained by Anthony Summers cites the first Rosenstiel meeting is taking place in 1956, though Summers notes, though Summers notes that there is evidence that they had met much earlier after requesting the meeting rosenstiel was granted a personal face-to-face -face with the director in a matter of hours isn't that weird um that that man was able to despite being like almost no one he was just he immediately was granted a fucking meeting with him so that shows that, like you got to be either really powerful or have a lot of dirt on somebody um so FBI file on Rosenstiel also reveals that the liquor baron heavily lobbied Hoover to aid his business interests. So he was like, yeah, let me in, dog. You got to let me manage your shit. And I guarantee you there was some conversation at some point where he's like, well, you know, I got these pictures of you doing some, like, pretty suspicious things, man. Um, if you don't play ball with me, something bad might happen. I don't know. You know, these, these might get leaked. So... And it was, uh, yeah, here we go. So during that time, the salacious detail of Hoover's sex life were already known to the U.S. intelligence community and to the mob, and Hoover was aware that they knew of his closeted sexuality and penchant for women's clothing. Wow. <laughs> like, it's funny to, like, the way Hoover's remembered in, like, history documentaries and stuff as, like, this, like, cutthroat guy, you know? He, like, started McCarthyism and, like, all that shit and, like, the Red Scare stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, like, he's, but, you know, he's running around in dresses. <laughs> 
I think he was an L- he was actually an LGBTQ ally, if we really want to go that far. I think he was the first the first uh, ally and to hold a government position. Maybe not the first, but definitely not the last either. Um, all right, so black. So he was seen at many of Rosenstiel's blackmail parties in the 1950s and 60s, including at venues such as Rosenstiel's personal home and later at Manhattan's Plaza Hotel. Hoover's penchant for dressing in drag was also described by two witnesses who were not connected to Susan Kaufman. Um, soon after the first official meeting, the public relationship between the two men quickly flourished, with Hoover even sending Rosenstiel flowers when he fell ill. Summers reported that in 1957, Rosenstiel was heard telling Hoover during a meeting, Your wish is my command. The relationship remained close and intimate throughout the 1960s and beyond. Like Rosenstiel, how Hoover was well known for amassing blackmail on friend and foe. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, that's literally like, these motherfuckers all save receipts on each other at all times, you know? Because you don't know, because you guys... When you're all doing such bad things, you have to be able to, like, knock the next guy down to save your own ass just in case, right? Like, that's how these things work. It makes you, like, makes you wonder the kind of, like, weird sociopaths that have to get involved in that shit that, like, that attracts them. I bet it fucking attracts that kind of person. I mean, I think we can look in the halls of power today and see that very, very clearly, you know. So, um... Hoover's own propensity for blackmail suggests that he may have associated with Rosenstiel's sexual blackmail operation more directly. Given he already knew he was compromised, his involvement in the operation would have served as a means of procuring the blackmail he coveted for his own purposes. Indeed, if Hoover was merely being blackmailed and extorted by the Lansky-Rosenstiel-connected mob, it is unlikely that he would have been so friendly to Rosenstiel. Lansky and the other mobsters at these gatherings... Uh, Lansky and the other mobsters at these gatherings and participated them participated in them with such regularity yeah so he was like probably pretty in deep with these guys because he realized he could get what he needed too despite them probably like being able to take him out so according to journalist and author burton hirsch hoover was also tied to sherman kaminsky who ran a sexual blackmail operation in new york involving young male prostitutes that operation was busted and investigated in a 1966 extortion probe led by Manhattan District Attorney Frank Hogan. Though the FBI quickly took over the investigation and photos of Hoover and Kaminsky together soon disappeared from the case file. Hoover and Rosenstiel's deep ties would continue to develop over the years, an example of which can be seen in Rosenstiel's hiring of longtime Hoover aide Louis Nichols as the vice president of the Shillini Liquor Empire and Rosenstiel's donation of over $1 million to the J. Edgar Hoover Foundation, which Nichols also ran at the time. Man, the nepotism is strong with these fellas, dude. They are, they are all over it, man. The nepotism is crazy. So, um, going on, the making of a monster. Decades after his death, Roy Cohn remains a controversial figure in large part because of his close personal relationship with current U.S. President Donald Trump. Yet reports on Cone, both in recent and past years, often miss the mark in the characterization of the man who became closely associated with the Reagan White House, the CIA, the FBI, organized crime, and incidentally, many of the figures who would later surround Jeffrey Epstein. To understand the true nature of the man, it is essential to examine his rise to power in the early 1950s, when at just 23 years of age, he became a key figure in the high-profile trial of Soviet spies Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, and later as the right-hand man of Senator Joseph McCarthy. Cohn's dedication to anti-communist activities in the 1950s is allegedly what first endeared him to J. Edgar Hoover, whom he first met in 1952 during that meeting, and described as described by Hirsch and Bobby and J. Edgar 
the historic face-off between the Kennedys and J. Edgar Hoover that transformed America. Hoover expressed admiration for Cohn's aggressive and manipulative tactics and told Cohn to call me directly whenever he had information worth sharing. From that point on, Cohn and Hoover traded favors, effusive compliments, gifts, and elaborate private dinners. It quickly became Roy and Edgar. Hirsch also describes Hoover as Cohn's soon-to-be consigliere. Yeah, so, like, he's his fucking, like, capo. He's his guy that gets shit done for him. So... You just see these like power marriages. It's like even now the fact that Epstein is so was so entrenched with so many of our politicians. It's like a cycle that repeats itself. You know, once shit gets going, like uh, I they don't stop. Like once a tried and true tactic begins of like sexual blackmail, trafficking drugs to get funds for illegal activities that you can't do that the country wouldn't recognize and would probably hang you out to dry and or kill you for. You know, these things become so commonplace and it's rife with them. It's like it's like flipping over a rock and you're just like, Jesus, look at all the bugs scurrying around under there. You know, I mean, yeah, say what you will about Trump, but he wasn't wrong about calling it a fucking swamp, man. These people are fucking in there and it's it's just an organized crime family, just like Trump has his little crime family, just like fucking the Bushes do, just like the Clintons do. It's all just different crime families vying for their own time at bat, you know, and everybody's, you know. Uh, I think it's James Carville maybe said America's a cow with 310 teats and everyone's just trying to get a fucking suck. You know, everyone's trying to butt in there and get a little, get a little milk out of it. I think that's pretty, uh, I think that's a decent analogy, you know, and there's some people who've learned to game the system so that they can get a little more than just one teat at the end of the day, you know? So, uh, back to where we were. Uh, the date and circumstances around Cohn's introduction to Rosensteel are harder to come by. It is possible that the connection was made through Roy Cohn's father, Albert Cohn, a prominent judge and influential figure in New York City, in the New York City Democratic Party apparatus, then run by Edward Flynn. It was later revealed that the Democratic organization dominated by Flynn and based in the Bronx had long-standing connections to organized crime, including associates of Meyer Lansky. Regardless of how or when it began, the relationship between Cohn and Rosensteel was close and was often likened to that of a father and son. They were said to frequently salute each other in public and remain close until Rosensteel was near death, at which point Cohn attempted to trick his then barely conscious and senile friend and client into naming him the executor and trustee of the liquor magnate's estate, valued at $75 million. Wow! So, Cohn tried to fucking basically rug pull this guy it's kind of like when bill gates went to his dying friend's house and was talking to his other executive guy uh the guys who worked at microsoft he goes hey man we need to figure out how to make this guy give up all his shares and like the dude was in the next room and heard him was like what the fuck bill what's wrong with you you know so life magazine reported in 1969 that cone and rosensteel had for years referred to one another as field commander supreme commander respectively media references to these nicknames appear in other articles from the period through life and other outlets, had though life and other outlets had interpreted this as merely an anecdote about the nicknames shared in jest between close friends, the fact that notorious crime lord Meyer Lansky also called Rosensteel supreme commander, and the fact that Con or Cone and Rosensteel would later become intimately involved in the same pedophile sex ring suggests that there may have been more to these nicknames after all. The mob to which Rosensteel was connected often used military-themed titles like soldier and lieutenant to differentiate the rank and importance of its members. Once he had made his connection with Hoover, Cohn's star began to rise even higher in Washington. Hoover's recommendation of Cohn would become the deciding factor in his appointment as Senator McCarthy's general counsel over Robert Kennedy, a rival, bitter enemy of Cohn's. So this guy was like into all kinds of fucked up weird shit, and he got a fucking pointed as Senator McCarthy's right-hand aide, man. What dirt did he have on McCarthy? 
Though Cohn was ruthless and seemingly untouchable as McCarthy's counsel, and helped the senator destroy many careers during throwing the red and lavender scares. I don't know what the lavender scare is, but it's interesting. His antics in relation to his work on the committee would eventually lead to his downfall after he attempted to blackmail the army in return for preferential treatment for committee consultant and Cohn's rumored lover, David Sheen. Ah, so he fucked up, huh? Um, after he was forced to leave McCarthy's side due to the scandal, Cohn returned to New York to live with his mother and practice law. A few years later, New York Judge David Peck, a longtime associate of former CIA director Alan Dulles, orchestrated Cohn's hire to the New York law firm, law firm Sachs, Bacon, and O'Shea. Alan Dulles is another interesting motherfucker who um, was very involved in a lot of shady things. Um, he was a OG guy at the OSS, I believe, then ended up being head of the CIA director. And oversaw all the shady shit that went on, like, in, I want to say, like, Vietnam-era CIA. You know, he he was the fucking brainchild of that. He's kind of the original guy they attribute as being, like, deep state. Because I think he was the head under Kennedy, possibly. I might have that wrong. Don't don't kill me over it. But, uh, yeah, and he oversaw a lot of very shady things. I mean, the Phoenix program, where they were just outright, essentially, training and turning soldiers into serial killers and making them go do serial killer things to villages of Vietnamese people to like scare them into not fighting. Uh, a lot of dirty things were done in Alan Dulles's name um, while he was in power. He's not a nice guy. Another interesting figure you guys should look into if you have any free time. He's quite a rabbit hole to dive down. Um, so, which... So he got appointed to Sachs, Bacon, and O'Shea, which would later become Sachs, Bacon, and Bullen after Tom Bullen, a friend of Cohn's, became a partner in the firm. Upon his hire, Cohn brought the firm the firm, a slew of mafia-linked clients, including high-ranking members of the Gambino crime family, the Genovese, and, of course, Louis Rosenstiel. Um, so what happened in Suite 233? This is where we kind of get into the pedophile stuff. So it seems like Cohn... Um, Cone and Rosensteel were kind of like the OG Epstein fellows, you know, they, this, this was their thing, you know? So, um, what happened in suite 233? Um, the connections Roy Cone built during the 1950s made him a well-known public figure and translated into great political influence that peaked during the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Yet, as Cone built his public image, he was also developing a dark private life, which would come to be dominated by the same blackmail pedophile racket that appears to have first begun with Louis Rosensteel. One of the main blackmail parties... Susan Kaufman attended with her then husband Louis Rosensteel was hosted by Cone in 1958 at Manhattan's and Manhattan's Plaza Hotel Suite 233. So this was his bugged out little suite that he had all the stuff to capture images of people and whatever else you know while they were attending these parties to get compromise on them. Um, Kaufman described Cone's suite as a beautiful suite, all done in light blue. She described being introduced to Hoover, who was in drag by Cone, who told her that Hoover's name was Mary in a fit of barely concealable laughter. Kaufman testified that young boys were present, and Kaufman claimed that Cone, Hoover, Hoover and her ex-husband engaged in sexual activity with these minors. Jesus fucking Christ. New York attorney John Klotz, tasked with investigating Cone for a case well after Kaufman's testimony, also found evidence of the blue suite at the Plaza Hotel and its role in a sex extortion ring after combing through local government documents and information gathered by private detectives. Klotz later told journalist and author Burton Hirsch what he what what he had learned. Roy Cohn was providing a protection. There were a bunch of pedophiles involved. That's where Cohn got his power from. Blackmail. Boom. Epstein. I mean, there it is. Like that's your that's kind of your direct line to start drawing things up to Epstein. You know, this is just an, the same old playbook spun a different way. 
Perhaps the most damning confirmation of Cohn's activities in Suite 233 comes from statements made by Cohn himself, the former NYPD detective and ex-head of the department's human trafficking and vice-related crimes, crimes division, James Roth Rothstein. Rothstein later told John DeCamp, a former Nebraska state senator, yeah, DeCamp wrote the Franklin scandal, which is actually, I actually have it right here because I've been reading it lately. Uh, that's why I'm even on this topic because I've been digging back into all these political pedophilia things and kind of, they're very interesting. Um, and it's really interesting to see how much glaring evidence can be there, but how masterfully like the powers that be work at covering it up, like the Franklin scandal and what went down there. And I know this is off topic because I'm really just covering the like original CIA blackmail Epstein stuff, but it, it, it really is an important kind of case study. Um, the way that things went down in the Franklin scandal with the witnesses and stuff, uh, you know, the witnesses all had like relatively corroborating stories and like they got pressured and it changing them. Uh, they got, you know, they were told they were insane. They were imagining things like, I mean, but Larry King got caught in the white house with like young boy escorts in the middle of the night while George Bush was senior was in power. I mean, if that's not like damning enough on its own, it said that Larry King would drive through fucking Boys Town in his car. He had a very noticeable car. It was like a specific type of like car that the guy ran. And even the bank fraud he committed, like, it's like that's not even the biggest part of the thing is like the Franklin scandal of the bank. That kind of takes away from the actual like disgusting acts that were going on. And there's a lot of people who testified that these things were happening, you know? So it's like it's crazy to watch the way the powers that be scuttle to cover these things up. Much like with Epstein, you know, they're the sweetheart deal was arranged because they're like, well, it was said multiple times. Like he's intelligence. You know, he might not be a CIA operative, but he's certainly an agent. Cause I, I, I may have that back. I'm pretty sure agents are people they pick up. Operatives are people who work for them. Um, and actually are under the banner of the CIA. So, you know, it's very clear, you know, and even he probably even was hooked up with the Mossad. You know, I think that's also pretty clear. People know that like that's brought up a lot with his name. So, it's kind of, it's just like, if you have free time, Franklin Scandal is another one to dig into. That's kind of an older one. And like McMartin preschool, there's a lot of these glaring incidences and it's crazy how much information you can find around it and how much it doesn't really exist in the mainstream. Maybe cause it's like, I guess I could attribute it to the story being too ugly, gross. Like people don't want to hear about this shit. It's, it's like the depravity of the human soul, like the depths of the human soul of like this kind of evilness going on, you know, like genuine evil in this world, these people, you know, but, um, certain folks get pretty obsessive about it, like me. I don't know. It's just, it's cause it's intriguing. You know, it's very intriguing at the end of the day. It's like, it's like the Dan Schneider stuff that came back up recently. You know, Dan, uh, what was it? Jeanette McCurdy wrote that book. Um, I wish my mother was dead, which I'd been meaning to talk about for like a while, but we just, it was kind of in my backlog of topics. If me and a like ever ran out of steam, you know, I was gonna be like, Hey, have you heard about this shit? But, um, yeah, Jenna McCurdy wrote like a thing and talked about a producer that abused her and made her do terrible things. And like, uh, nothing like absolutely specific, but there was a scene where she had to like, the, there's like a scene of Ariana Grande, like trying to squeeze juice out of a potato, like essentially doing like phallic, like motions like she was uh, interacting with a phallic object um, that he filmed as like a skit. And then and that doesn't even scrape the surface of like the feet stuff. You know, when you go hang out with Dan and you go to the casting call, they make the kids run around without their shoes on. You know, it's just like disgusting shit like that, man. 
and and you can tell that that kind of deviance is a sign of a darker thing. You know, that lighthearted deviance is a sign of a much darker thing. And Dan resigned from Nickelodeon with no kind of like, if anything, he should have been like, he should have had a huge thing for him resigning. It should have been a big deal if he was like resigning in good standing, you know, and not being like pushed off because too much had come out about him. If he was resigning in good standing, he was hand, single-handedly responsible for like turning Nickelodeon into the brand it is with all those live action shows from all that all the way to um, whatever that last fucking one he was working on, <laughs> you know, Zoe 101, all that shit. And a lot of people think and speculate, and this is, I'm just, this is hearsay. I'm not saying this is definitive, that he may have been the one um, that got Jamie Lynn Spears pregnant, potentially, when she was on Zoe 101, which is why the show had to end, but that also coincides with Britney, Britney Spears' fucking mental breakdown, which you could think that something like that and finding out something like that and not being able to say anything about it might make one go a little crazy. But that's, uh, again, it's all hearsay and speculation. I'm not saying that's fact at all in any way. Just got to be careful, you know. You can't... Can't throw too many stones. Um, so back on uh, back on the article here, Rosenstein later told John DeCamp, a former Nebraska senator who investigated a government-connected child sex ring based in Omaha, among other investigators, that John that Cohn had admitted to being part of a sexual blackmail operation targeting politicians with child prostitutes during a sit-down interview with the former detective. Rosenstein Rothstein told DeCamp the following about Cohn. Cone's job was to run the little boys. Say he had an admiral, a general, a congressman who did not want to go along with the program. Cone's job was to set them up, then they would go along. Cone told me that himself. Rothstein later told Paul David Collins, a former journalist turned researcher, that Cone had also identified the sexual blackmail operation as being part of the anti-communist crusade of the time. The fact that Cone, per Rothstein's recollection, stated that the child sex blackmail ring was part of the government-sponsored anti-communist crusade suggests that elements of the government, including Hoover's FBI, may have been connected at a much broader level than Hoover's own personal involvement, as the FBI closely coordinated with McCarthy and Cone for much of the Red Scare. It is also worth noting that among Hoover's many secret blackmail files was a sizable dossier on Senator McCarthy, the contents of which strongly suggested that the senator himself was interested in underage girls. According Jesus, according to journalist and author David Talbot, Hoover's file on McCarthy was filled with disturbing stories about McCarthy's habits of drunkenly groping young girls' breasts and buttocks. The stories were so widespread that it became common knowledge in the Capitol, according to the FBI chron one FBI chronicler. It's you know I would love to know if you. Could, be a fly on the wall in DC just to know who who's doing what right now, you know, or are they more careful these days? Cause it's much easier to get caught. I honestly wonder, um, truth be told, you know, I mean, how many politicians are on Epstein's flight list? Uh, and if they are, they were, why do they hold still hold office? Big, the big, uh, that's the, the million dollar question. So, um, Senator himself was interested in according journalists. Philip story. So Talbot in his book, The Devil's Chessboard, also cites Walter Trohan, Washington bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune, as having personally witnessed McCarthy's habit of molesting young women. He just couldn't keep his hands off young girls. Trohan later said, Why the communist opposition didn't plant a minor on him and raise the cry of statutory rape, I don't know. It's because the threat was never as big as they made it out to be. That's why. So perhaps the answer lies in the fact that those planting minors and their potential foes were McCarthy's allies and close associates and not his enemies. Yeah, very much so. It's um, And I mean, that's kind of the typical 
And that was, uh, in that like, you know, politicking one-on-one always accuse your enemies of, uh, what you're doing, you know? So the question that necessarily arises from revelations regarding Cohen's activities in suite 233 is who else was Cohen protecting and servicing with underage prostitutes? One of them could very well have been one of Cohen's close friends and clients, Cardinal Francis Spellman of the Archdiocese of New York. Oh no. Who was said to have been present at some of these parties Cohen hosted at the Plaza Hotel? Wow. <laughs> there's nobody that isn't uh there's nobody that's untouched by this thing, you know. It's kind of wild when you look at it. So that guy was called America's Pope as well and was accused of not only condoning pedophilia in the church and ordaining known pedophiles, including Cardinal Theodore, Uncle Teddy. Oh, no, that's not who our podcast is named after, by the way, um, McCarrick, but also engaging in it himself and to such an extent that many New York area priests widely referred to him as Mary. Furthermore, J. Edgar Hoover was said to have a file detailing the Cardinal's sex life, suggesting Spellman's involvement in the ring and pedophile protection racket in which Cohn and Hoover were personally involved. Oh, Jesus Christ, there's a picture of him with kids. Oh, no. That's, um... That's horrifying. Wow. I like this quote here. Roy was not gay. He was a man who liked having sex with men. Gays were weak and effeminate, and he always seemed to have these young blood boys around. It just wasn't discussed. He was interested in power and access, and access to young boys' asses, apparently. Um, compare this quote from Stone to what Donald Trump, who was close to Cohen, would later say about Jeffrey Epstein, with whom he was closely associated. I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. No doubt about it. Jeffrey enjoys his social life. Emphasis added. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, so, yeah, uh, let's finish this last little section about Roy Cohn. So, though it is unknown how long the sex ring in the Plaza Hotel continued and whether it continued after Cohn's death from AIDS in 1986, it is worth noting that Donald Trump purchased the Plaza Hotel in 1988. Oh, interesting. It will later be reported and confirmed by then-attendees that Trump used to host parties in suites at the Plaza Hotel where he owned it, where young women and girls were introduced to older rich men and illegal drug as drugs and women were passed around to use. So, yeah, I don't doubt that for a second. Like, Trump can say what he wants. But I don't doubt when you're that level and you're a power player that you're not involved in some kind of, uh, you know, suspicious shit. Uh, you might be able to make your record look real squeaky clean, but there's something out there somewhere, sure. I don't think it's a P-tape, you know, but there's probably something out there. So um, I wanted to move on to... Um, let's see here. I was trying to find... Operation Underworld. So Operation Underworld, this and this also shows you kind of how the CIA became embedded, embedded with um with with these guys. You know, this the Operation Underworld was an operation they ran, and uh, all these guys are connected. You know, and it was them forging ties with these mob groups, um, in order to make sure that they could like uh undermine fascist activities in Italy. Um, because they were worried about that. They were worried that there might be um, Italian fascist sympathizers who had snuck in through the, you know, the ports uh, coming through like Ellis Island and shit and working in, you know, in on our side and could potentially be saboteurs, any kind of thing, you know, or, or to help gain sympathy and uh, for their side in the war, et cetera, et cetera. So um, let's. So what was Operation Underworld? 
In order to pretend, prevent enemy sabotage at home during World War II, the U.S. government secretly enlisted the help of an unlikely partner. It makes it sound so cute, doesn't it? Like, oh man, and this is on history.com, so they ain't hiding this one. Um, so on the afternoon of February 9th, 1942, smoke billowed over Manhattan's west side as fire consu consumed the SS Normandy, a huge French luxury liner being converted into American World War II troop transport. Although the witnesses reported sparks from a worker's acetylene torch started the blaze, <coughs> many witnesses, oh no, excuse me, many feared Nazi saboteurs were to blame, particularly in light of the arrest of 33 German agents and the Dukent spying only months earlier in the Inferno's in the Inferno's wake. The U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence became so concerned about enemy spies operating along New York's waterfront that it enlisted a most unlikely partner in the war effort: the Mafia. In March 1942, with the recruitment of Fulton Fish Market Kingpin Joseph Sox Lanza, naval intelligence officers launched a top-secret Operation Underworld. Lanza agreed to furnish union cards to agents operating undercover in the market and aboard coastal fishing fleets. Authorities were particularly concerned that pro-fascist sympathizers of Germany's top uh, ally, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, lurked among the Italian immigrants who worked as longshoremen in New York. However, Lanza explained that their cooperation could be secured by the imprisoned mobster Charles Lucky Luciano, who pops up again. Luciano was everywhere, dude. He was, uh, it was, no, Lansky was the fucking, like, mobs, uh, you know, basically banker slash accountant guy, but Luciano was the big, you know, he was head of the docks at the time. Like, his his mob ran shit at the time. So, he still wielded power at the dock even after six years behind bars. With his top aide, Meyer Lansky, acting as intermediary, Luciano agreed to assist the government and ordered his capos to act as lookouts and report any suspicious activity. Luciano's contacts even assisted the Allies in the 1943 amphibious invasion of Sicily by providing maps of the island's harbors, photographs of its coastline, and the names of trusted contacts inside the Sicilian Mafia who wished to see Mussolini toppled. Still, between 20 and 40 years left on his sentence, Luciano filed a petition for executive clemency on May 8th, 1945, the same day World War II ended in Europe. Ironically, the man who had prosecuted the mobster a decade earlier, New York governor Thomas E. Dewey, pardoned him in 1946 due to his assistance in the war effort and ordered him deported to his native Italy. Alright, so, gotta get past all these fucking ads on here, good lord. Wait, what? So, the ultimate effect of his operation Underworld has been questioned, but no other ships suffered the same fate as the Normandy for the duration of the World War II. Okay, well, I would raise you a, uh, you know, I'd raise you the fact that, like, uh, just because nothing else happened, it doesn't mean that they couldn't have kind of, like, done the sabotage themselves, right? Like, I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility uh, to create this very necessity. Again, like, when we're talking about all this stuff, these things tend to kind of come from home versus like it being outside phenomena, you know, like they always try to say, Oh, well, you know, the, this thing happened and it caused the, you know, caused the CIA to do this or that and react in this way. But it's like, usually like it's always, you know, you always have to ask you like Hegelian dialectic problem, reaction, solution. And if you're offering up all three, you get to control the whole result at the end of the day. So not beyond the scope, I think. But yeah, I mean, 
I just kind of want to give you guys a peek into that stuff, and hopefully this piqued some of your interest and it wasn't too fucking boring, uh, just me kind of reading stuff to you. Um, but that was the best way to present it so that it was factually accurate because it's a little more research-based here on this episode. Um, we'll definitely get back to the more schizo stuff next week um, with a lot of... with a We're supposed to be digging into predictive programming. Um, and for everybody on Patreon, you'll get a little video that I'll upload of uh, me broadcasting this. Um, and besides that, like, I'm just ready for A to get back so we can kind of keep doing our thing, doing the schizo thing. I kind of had to hang myself on a wire here and get this done today, but, uh, hopefully it was interesting to some of you. Um, go check out that Whitney Webb book I talked about, Blackmail, um, One Nation Under Blackmail. Got it right here. Looks like this. Um, it's two volumes, both the same size. Pretty thick book. Really good though. A lot of heady information. I may have read you some of it because I feel like I've already read most of that stuff I read today in this book. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, Franklin Scandal, uh, DeCamp's book, definitely worth checking out. You know, we can we can talk about books because A is not here, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, love you, bud. But um, so, yeah, with that being said, uh, I think I'm going to land this plane for today. It's a little bit shorter than usual, but... Um, stay tuned to the Patreon. Next week, we're filming a video episode. Uh, turnaround should be a lot quicker on that, a lot better. Um, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening. And then if you guys could and you feel like it, uh, go check out the Patreon. You know, the more you contribute over there, the more time we can kind of put towards uh, trying to push better content to you and kind of keep you entertained, keep doing schizo shit. Um, and go, at least you can do, if you don't mind, is heading over to Spotify. Dropping a rating, you know, five star on the fucking cast. Uh, we appreciate all of you who do listen and have done so. Very awesome to have been doing this for as long as we have. And, like, people actually kind of vibe with it. And thanks to everybody on Instagram who interacts with us. You guys are great. You send some funny shit sometimes. Sometimes you send some crazy shit. But we love all of you. <laughs> and, uh, and and those of you who may have been apprehensive to listen to uh, Lifting in the Ruins uh, with me and my brother, um, we're going to probably start recording a live video of that. Uh, and posting it up on the Patreon, I would think, because uh, that that Uncle Ted's Patreon is kind of going to be centric, I think, to all the stuff that we do, you know, at the end of the day. Um, or we may make our own. I'm not sure. I think we've kind of discussed it back and forth. That's like some inside baseball. doesn't really fucking matter. Um, but yeah, go check out LI, LI Lifting in the Ruins. Go check it out, please. Uh, give it a listen. We kind of joke around, fuck around, talk about all kinds of bullshit on there. Um, and it's definitely not as schizo as this. A little more lighthearted. Uh, not so much pedophilia and monstrosity discussion, but, um, you know, and give us a rating if you listen to it and if you like it, give some feedback. Uh, next week we're having Harrison Friedman, who you may have remembered have been, having been on this podcast, uh, from Jew and on the man himself. He's going to enter the dojo of lifting in the ruins and do his thing, uh, with us. It's going to be a lot of fun, I think. So, um, that being said, guys, uh, thanks for listening. Have a good week, and uh, we'll see you Wednesday for Lifting in the Ruins. Peace.